Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. And it's Well, it's almost election night again, because we are just four days away from the final election of the midterms. The Senate runoff in Georgia pitting Democrat Raphael Warnock against Republican challenger Herschel Walker. Now, early voters have turned out in really droves, I mean, in record numbers. And now Democrats are holding their breath until Tuesday, waiting to see if they will win a 51 seat majority. Plus, two of former President Trump's top White House lawyers testifying today to a federal grand jury in the criminal investigation of efforts to obstruct the peaceful transfer of power. Pat Cipollone reportedly testifying for more than five hours. And we don't know what he said behind closed doors, but we can all agree five hours is a lot of time to answer a lot of questions. You wonder how many times you can really have a fruitful conversation about pleading the fifth and still go five hours. We're waiting to see what actually happened there. And yet we have no, we know that the biggest moment yet for the World Cup, at least for Team USA, is yet to come as the underdogs take on the Netherlands tomorrow. I'm talking to someone who knows all about being a World Cup champion, one of the biggest stars ever on the women's team. Brandy Chastain is here and joining us soon. We've got a lot to talk about tonight. So here with me tonight are CNN political commentators, Ashley Allison and Scott Jennings, and CNN political analyst Alex Burns. Glad to have you all here on a Friday night. You're probably experiencing some deja vu um, for election night or election season, for Georgia and a runoff again, for it being a balance of power issue. And you would think that people would say, we've been here before, seen this movie, moving on. No, instead the opposite's happening. We're talking about record numbers of people who are turning out, even though, Scott, they don't have like a big ticket person, meaning a governor on the t- or a full ballot. They've got one election and they're still turning out. What do you make of it? Well, a lot of money's been spent on this race uh, by both parties, both in the general election and now in this runoff. And both parties, I think, have all their biggest all-stars as it relates to voter turnout. Uh, Democrats certainly do. Uh, and Brian Kemp, the governor, who's uh, won re-election, is pretty popular, has put his shoulder to the wheel for Herschel Walker. So, I mean, everybody's all in on it. Uh, from a, both an organizational and a money perspective. So I'm not surprised, you know, mm-hmm. of, of this. It, this race kind of became nationalized, even among all the other Senate races. It became mm-hmm. one of the two or three highest profile things. And I also get Even the fe- before, by the way, even before it was in a runoff capacity, yeah. Yeah. it was a big one. I also get the feeling that Georgians are relishing their newfound yeah. uh, status as some of the most important voters mm-hmm. in America. I mean, Georgia is now one of the closest, most purple states in America, which wasn't the case very recently. So maybe the voters there are are excited to be sort of uh, uh, kind of high profile uh, every cycle now. I mean, they are the place, right? Think about where Obama's always going now at this point in time. You've got 
in Michelle Obama, the former first lady, did not do a lot of campaigning this cycle. And yet she had that sort of call that was there. I don't want to call it a robocall. It's more dismissive. But she had a call where she was reaching out, telling people to vote as well. And you have on the flip side, you had Senator Lindsey Graham. You had Cotton, who, who turned out. You have more people like um, Rick Scott and beyond. There's a lot of interest, but I suspect for different reasons. On the one hand, for Republicans, it's, look, this is the balance of power, maybe for the committee's sake. And do Democrats a different philosophy? What do you, what's your take? Well, I do think Georgians are excited about being paid attention to and being courted for their vote. I think in every Senate race, every race, it should always feel like that. Every voter should feel like their vote matters. I also think this is uh, some forecasting for 2024. Mm. So what happens in this runoff? You know, 2020 folks were very surprised, not everyone, but some folks were very surprised that it, the state flipped blue. Can it sustain? Can a Warnock do it twice? And if so, when you're starting to look at a map um, for 2024, you start making some decisions about how you staff up in that state. If you're going to if whether it's Biden or whether we have an open field for Democrats, Mm. I think Republicans are I'm not one, but, you know, um, (laughs) you're welcome. You're welcome. To be, to be in the club, in the group. Well, that's a Friday night invitation. Are you going to take I, it up? I don't know. I, think I would take I'll this pass. one any day. I mean, she's terrific. Thank I mean, you. I love Thank that. You. Well, I'm flattered, but I think I'll have Alex, to Alex, I might throw up at some point. No, no, no. <laughs> Wait, okay. If you want to join me, that's no. fine. Go ahead. Let me make my actual point, though. So, but I think that for Republicans, I, there is um, determination on candidate quality, but what does it really mm. mean? I think there was some strategy putting a black man against another black man here. And if it doesn't pan out well, you should, if you're going to do it, pick a qualified black man to put up against um, someone like a Raphael Warner. Well, I'll tell you, um, the president of the United States was asked earlier about, you know, why was he not in places like Georgia? I'm talking about President Biden campaigning. And he mentioned he was going to be in Boston tonight, Alex having a big fundraiser and something for him that way. Of course, you know, the prince of uh, prince and princess are there of Wales. And in a fundraiser, we don't have the sound because you know how fundraisers are. They don't let you in with the cameras, whatever. But in a fundraiser for Senator Warnock tonight, President Biden called um, Walker a, quote, different breed and saying he doesn't deserve to be in the Georgia race. And I wonder how that ultimately will pan out. What do you think? Well, it's a variation on a line that we've... <clears throat> Heard from Joe Biden a, a whole lot of times, right? That these Republicans today, it's a different. They're they're a different kind of cat than than your dad's Republicans and uh, that kind of shtick. It, it's pretty boilerplate from him from him in a lot of ways. Um, but I do think it's pretty interesting that he he's touching that race from Boston, mm. right? That <laughs> yeah. you know uh, uh, you're saying on on the, on the lead in that sort of all the biggest players uh, in both parties are there. You're you know, talking about uh, the, the, you know all the surrogates going in to drive turnout. Uh, the leader of the Democratic Party is not there because it would probably be bad for the Democratic incumbent running for re-election. Uh, and the de facto leader of the Republican Party, Donald Trump, is not there. Mm. Uh, you know, Brian Kemp is the Republican who Herschel Walker yeah. wants to mm. be seen with. There are a whole lot of other uh, Democrats, including Barack Obama, who Raphael Warnock is very, very happy to campaign with. But right now, Joe Biden himself is seen as just a risky proposition. He's not a popular man in the state, even though the most senior member of his party in the state seems like he's going to do pretty well. I do think that, you know, to Ashley's point about how this is a, a, a sort of preview of 2024, I think it's going to be a pretty good temperature check on whether Georgia is a swing state uh, to stay. I think it might not answer the question of whether 
that state is ready to break hard for one party uh, or the other, whether even if the Democrats do sort of continue to win in these Senate races there, I'm not sure how encouraging that is for Biden specifically. You know, interestingly enough, I mean, the idea, especially after the red wave did not materialize, the fact that he is still a bit of the, on the other side of the 10-foot pole of maybe you shouldn't come here. Meanwhile, Kemp, obviously Raffensperger, who um, won re-election in Georgia, not the personas non grata, but I'm still kind of reacting to the idea of the different breed. I, I know that it's his, his commentary about a different cat, and it's really, maybe, it, maybe it's the way he speaks, but there is some dynamic at play that has a bit of a cringe factor when you're talking about it, for the ra- reasons you're talking about, the idea that race has cast a very big shadow on the choices being made between these two candidates. And I wonder how, you, how does that play for either of you? Well, when I read that tonight before we came out, I mean, I stopped on that word because I, I wondered, and to your, we don't have audio of it, I guess. Yeah. We don't have video of it. So reading it on paper, maybe maybe it would sound a little different if you're, but I, I paused on it. I, I wondered if it was going to make people uncomfortable because it's, I mean, you know, this is, you an, wonder. This, yeah. is an, this is an old white guy talking about a African-American male. And, uh, and I, I stopped on it. Plus, the, the overall, he doesn't deserve to be in the race. I mean, he won a primary. I mean, he's as, he's as qualified as anybody to run. Doesn't mean he's going to win, but, uh, I, I mean, doesn't deserve to be in a race. I mean, what is that? Even me. Well, I mean, President Obama didn't say those exact words, but remember there was that moment just yesterday, and I'm going to play it again because everyone's been talking about it, and I think it hones in the point, and it's the one who's talking about the werewolf-vampire distinction, but it's the way that President Obama ends this that is to your point. Listen. Since the last time I was here, Mr. Walker has been talking about issues that are of great importance to the people of Georgia. Like whether it's better to be a vampire or a werewolf. In case you're wondering, by the way, Mr. Walker decided he wanted to be a werewolf. Which is great. As far as I'm concerned, he can be anything he wants to be. Except for a United States Senator. I mean, the idea of what he deserves or not, it's a different take, but it's the same concept. That was a great line. I mean, he landed it perfectly. I think it's not that no one deserves or it's like Herschel Walker doesn't have a very, he's not articulating a clear policy agenda. He does have some questionable things in his past to the Biden point. I don't assign malicious intention to it, but the point is, is that people are saying Herschel Walker was selected because he was a black man who won the Heisman, who could run the football and that he would take direction, but not have a, a, um, an intention or, Direction, but not not initiative. initiative. Not initiative and not positions that would be unpopular with the Republican Party. Not because he doesn't believe it, because he's just like a yes guy. And so I think that with like the breed is why folks might be a little cringeworthy. But even to your point, the idea of deserving or not. I mean, Alex, there's a new poll out tonight. And I mean, there's a runoff election on Tuesday because it was that close. Mm. I mean, look at this. Even tonight, the choice for runoff, 52 percent, 48 percent. That's a pretty narrow lead, which has us where we are right now, waiting with bated breath for Tuesday to see what happens. In spite of all you're talking about, right, and collectively it's being talked about by the former president, why still so close? 
Well, Georgia, I think, to all outward appearances, is still a center-right state, right? It's a center-right state that a Democrat can win under the right circumstances. But you know, it reminds me a little bit of uh, the way Virginia used to be for so many years mm. before it broke uh, uh, much more strongly in the, in the Democratic direction, where a Democrat can win by a little or a Republican can win by a whole lot, actually, right? The ceiling is much higher on the Republican side. And so I don't think there's any scenario. I think Republicans could nominate you know, the worst candidate ever devised in a lab for this Senate seat. And I don't think Raphael Warnock could have a chance of winning by more than you know five or six points, right? And Herschel Walker is a very, very flawed candidate, but he was not designed in a lab uh, to lose a Senate race. The Lieutenant Governor of Georgia made that point, right? He said he stood in line for four to five hours only to not cast a vote because he said, look, is that what we're talking about? Yeah. We, no, well, no, only for that reason, go ahead. No, and, and, and I think that the point, uh, 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 Lieutenant Governor Duncan's, um, decision not to vote in that race is reflective of, I think, actually, a, a lot of the constituency that uh, Barack Obama and Joe Biden, to a lesser degree, are, are sort of speaking to there are, are people who you know may not be partisan Democrats or may actually be partisan Republicans, but just kind of find Herschel Walker embarrassing, and they don't necessarily mm. feel comfortable uh, going out and don't necessarily feel motivated to go out and vote for him. And yet, we've got record turnout. Stick around. We've got more to talk about here. It is the final election night of a surprising midterm, se- midterm season. So join CNN for the Georgia runoff between Senator Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. Coverage starts right here on CNN Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern. So be sure to tune in. And look, while Georgia and the nation wait to see who comes out on top in Tuesday's runoff, there's another contest that's got Americans on the edge of their seats. Team USA's World Cup battle tomorrow against the Netherlands. Soccer superstar Brandy Chastain weighs in next. So tomorrow is the big day. The U.S. is set to play the Netherlands at 10 a.m. Eastern. And there's some good news for U.S. fans who are concerned about one of the team's star players, Christian Pulisic, who you remember, he was injured, unfortunately, while scoring that game-winning goal against Iran. Well, he's cleared now to play in tomorrow's game, and I'm thrilled to have my next guest here to talk about all of this. Brandy Chastain was the 1991 a 1999 Women's World Cup champion and a U.S. Olympic women's soccer gold medalist. And she joins us now. I'm thrilled to have you on. People were buzzing on set that you were, is she here? Is she not here? And I was like, she's remote. And they went, oh, okay. But I'm glad that you're here with us today. (laughs) Sorry, everyone. But we all know you because we were so thrilled and proud about that iconic moment in particular in 99. But the work that you've done has really been unparalleled as part of an overall team. And I wonder tomorrow in this really important matchup, how you think the U.S. men's team is going to perform? Uh, I think they're going to be outstanding. They've had an outstanding tournament thus far to get through the group stage um, and to have not given up a goal in the run of play is outstanding. Very difficult to do that. Uh, I feel like their confidence is, is very high. They, they know who they are and what they're capable of. It's a young team, but honestly, I, I believe it, it has a lot of veteran qualities, um, even mm. in their youth. And so I, I feel they're feeling quite comfortable. Now, you're playing one of the better teams historically in, in the World Cup in, in Holland, but this is uh, a team that, and it's a team that hasn't lost in 18 matches, and they are quite yeah. good. They play around the world, but I don't think this team fears anyone. So I feel like this match is going to be, um, as this World Cup has shown, 
just full of drama and emotions and ups and downs. And we're going to have to play at least a hundred minutes, if not wow. more, because we've had added time in every game. I mean, a fearless underdog is going to leave it all out on the field is my kind of match to watch. And we're all going to be thinking about that really important goal, the last game, but also although Netherlands is known as this really big powerhouse, I understand that they have been experiencing a bit of a flu outbreak. And this is not that I am hoping they have sort of one arm tied behind their back. I want a legitimate win for the team that's playing in the U.S. But their coach did give them a little bit of a day of rest. And I'm wondering how that plays out. If you're sort of the adrenaline pumping and you're in the mindset of a World Cup tournament, does the day off help you? Does it hurt you? What's better, do you think? You know, honestly, I, I don't think it, it's either one of those things. It, it mm. could be good and it could be just an unfortunate circumstance. So I think what teams and players now are really used to is having to be agile and adaptable. And I think that was one of the greatest qualities of our U.S. women's national team. And I feel because of the fact that this World Cup is not during the regular summer months that it normally is, and it's in the fall during the most seasons, these players have had to adapt as well. So I don't think from the the Dutch side, that's going to be a big deal. Honestly, sometimes a day of rest is just what the doctor ordered. But what I'm hoping is they come out in with the strongest lineup possible and we match their physical play, their tactical style, Um, And we find our comfort in the midfield, who has done great this whole tournament in Wea and uh, McKinney and um, and our our captain right now, now Tyler Adams, who is amazing and that we feed um, our forwards and we get some goals. And I think that we could put them under pressure. I got to tell you, I have two young kids. I don't know if a day of rest will help me or make me feel like more of a zombie most of the time. I just got to keep going, (laughs) keep an eye on the prize, and maybe coffee's at the end of the road. Let me ask you this. You know, this is an important time because every time they're winning, it's not just the idea of a patriotic camaraderie, right? They are also, the farther they get, this is a Title IX team, so to speak, and they are able to split and have chosen to, and you have earned the right to have these split and divided, and the farther they get, it's already, I think, what, six, six and a half million dollars, and they get further and further, the prize gets bigger and bigger. What is the impact for you and the significance of that, knowing that this has been a hard-fought battle? Well, I think, you know, this conversation about pay equity has been going on for four decades. Uh, you know, back when the national team was started, this is not something that's happened over the last seven years. So, Obviously, I'm thrilled that the team has pushed forward and created the conversation and then pushed it farther. And now we have a signed CBA that allows this pay equity to to happen. And I think the men's team is actually quite um, – they're a tremendous ally for the women's team. But that's not what we're talking about. Today, we're talking about the men's national team and this historic opportunity they have to further the future – of the game here in America. And that's really, for all of us, we want to celebrate them. Um, I I think at some, you know, to some degree, they've kind of been in the shade of the women's national team and they shouldn't Mm. because they are, they are good enough and they are, they're going to compete till the very last whistle and they are, they're talented. And I want everybody here and everybody around the world to see that because soccer is living and thriving here in America and I want it to be even bigger. So I hope the best for them. 
Well, I'll tell you, moments like this, watching what's going to happen tomorrow, hearing the camaraderie, and of course, can't help but think of the iconic moment from 1999 that everyone <laughs> thinks about. I mean, I wonder when you, I'm sure, look at this. First of all, <laughs> everything about this moment just brings me to a place of just, I'm so in awe. But I got to wonder, when people stop you and realize it's you, are these selfies a whole different ball game now? Are they like, hold on, I need you to kneel down with me. We got to do a whole thing. I hope you're not doing it, but oh. I wonder what they're asking. <laughs> no, you know what? I have to tell you, Laura, that the interactions I've had for the last 23 years have been phenomenal. I, mm. I am utterly thrilled to meet someone who is in the stadium. I want to know where they were sitting. I want to know what they were feeling. I want to know what they're feeling now when they see that moment, when they talk about it. How has it changed the, the way they look at women's sports or women in business, women um, leading the way? Like, honestly, it, it's such a, it was such a wonderful moment, um, very genuine, very organic, uh, very relieved. <laughs> that was mm. a big, big moment in terms of just like getting past China was incredible. Two amazing teams and someone had to win at the end. And mm. They, they might were as well be you. Tremendous opponent. <laughs> yeah, might as well be us. But uh, there you but, go. You know what? What has? Yeah, what has happened since then? I think we've catapulted the the game of soccer into a different stratosphere, and we see it with our women's national team. And now we get to celebrate our men's national team at this World Cup. Well, I tell you, you want to know what people are thinking even now when they're sitting and watching. They're feeling pride. They see the the feeling yes. of being triumphant, and they hope that it translates again tomorrow. Nice to talk to you, and thank you for being a part of it tonight. We look forward to seeing you tomorrow and cheering them on. Well, you too, and I'm wearing my, my crest proudly, and I will be wearing it from this moment until through the game. I hope everybody enjoys it, and let's go Team USA. Let's go Team USA, and we'll get maybe a bobblehead to match. Thank you so much. Nice talking to you about it. There you go. I see it. All, All right. right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's going to be a big day on Saturday, everyone, and today – it was a big day at the U.S. District Court in Washington for wildly different reasons. Former top Trump White House lawyers testifying to the January 6th criminal grand jury. So just how significant is their testimony to the investigation? Frankly, one of many. There's news tonight on the many investigations involving the former president, Donald Trump. Now, you know, two of his top White House lawyers testifying to the DOJ's criminal grand jury investigation and investigating efforts to obstruct the transfer of power. And the January 6th committee is weighing its final moves as their investigation nears its deadline and still considering the possibility of criminal referrals. Here with me now, CNN legal analyst Elliot Williams, and back with us, Scott Jennings and Alex Burns. Let me start with you here, Elliot, because it's a pretty significant moment that the former White House lawyers are testifying in a criminal grand jury. Speak to the significance of this moment in a time when we used to think about things like impeachment as never really wanting to ever happen, the idea of no one being above the law, the White House internal memos at DOJ about, excuse me, about whether to indict a sitting president was all sort of an esoteric debate. 
we're in a whole different world now. And I think part of the problem is there's a little bit of investigation fatigue. I know Scott will uh, agree with me on this. We've talked about mm-hmm. it. But this idea of because of the multiple impeachments yeah. and yeah. constant lawsuits against the former president that people sort of, have, uh, many people have just sort of become desensitized to it. This, in isolation, is profound. Number one, you have senior White House staff testifying before a grand jury. And you have lawyers mm-hmm. testifying before a grand jury after being directed to testify because the objections that they were raised in your testimony just didn't really stand Wait, so stop there for a second. Yeah. And like, let's unpack that because yeah. the idea that lawyers in general are testifying in front of the grand jury about notably contact they've likely had with somebody that they are providing legal advice to in some counsel is already odd. But then you've got the added, the added notion here that they were directed to do so. They were. And so a couple things, and there's a third layer, which is that they're also White House staff, mm-hmm. right? So there's, um, there's executive privilege questions, attorney-client privilege questions, and also a court has ordered them to testify on account of the fact that it's just important testimony to get. So it legally, politically, historically, it's just a profound moment. And, and you know, I'm with you on this, Scott, all of the investigations over the years leading up to this have sort of desensitized people to just how profound it all is right now. You know, you got to wonder when you're thinking about the so-called fatigue. I mean, there's people who are legitimately fatigued, and then there are people who would like you to be fatigued, (laughs) who would like you to be so exhausted and say, listen, hold on, we've got a new Congress coming January 3rd. They're going to good night the January 6th committee. Let's move on. Now, some want to move on to then have tit-for-tat investigations. Others want to move on to other things. And I just wonder from your perspective, the January 6th committee has got to wrap up, right? They've got to have a report. The laundry list of things that Congress has to do between now and January 3rd, though, expanding. How significant and how much we will pay attention, you think, to this report? Well, I think the January 6th committee has a pretty good record of drawing attention to mm. uh, the big sort of checkpoints in its uh, activities so far. But that's in TV, not a report. Well, sure, but, you know, it's uh, it's sort of up to them to decide how to roll that out and when and sort of what their tactics are for drawing attention to the material in it. Having said that, I think, you know, the burden is, as it has been all along, uh, on them to deliver the goods in a way that makes it worth paying attention to, right? If it's just the material that we've seen before, but compiled into a couple hundred pages, then no, I don't think it'll have some uh, major impact. But look, the, the phase of this process of you know, legal accountability for the people who were involved in whipping up an insurrection, um, that process has mostly moved beyond the January 6th committee at this mm. point, right? The testimony that we're talking about today uh, is way more important than the final, final, final act of that, that committee. There's some political fatigue. I'll just from a lot of Republicans who are just tired of carrying all these bags. I mean, you see some of the polling that's come out. You see DeSantis rising against Trump. You see people, even people who say they have kindly feelings towards Trump are ready to, to maybe move on and, and look in a different direction. So, so I, don't, I don't know if people are desensitized to it, but I certainly think they're getting tired of it. And, then, and, and, uh, and by tired of it, I mean just tired of the of the grind of it of it all. I mean, this has been going on for so long. And then you throw on top of it, he had a flat announcement for his presidential campaign. You get this crazy dinner with these nuts that there's no good explanation for. Other we'll than have horrific, to narrow down the other nuts. than horrific judgment. <laughs> right. Kanye and okay, his got it. character. And then you've got uh, you know reasonable alternatives rising who look like winners, who aren't gonna force the average Republican they have to go to work tomorrow or go to the PTA meeting or whatever and defend, you know, whatever Donald Trump's doing. And so th- this is all happening at a really, really rough time for him. I, I got to tell you, I, I, I mean, still quite formidable, still a lot of assets at his disposal, but man alive, they, they are 
they are struggling right now. You know, and another issue is that I think the public doesn't really have a, a, a distinction between what's a state investigation, what's a private investigation, what's somebody suing the president, what's Congress investigating the president, and what are the very serious federal charges the president might face because the Justice Department is looking at him. It's all sort of one big bucket of yeah. badness being dumped on the former president. Um, and each of them in isolation is quite serious. Some of them, and particularly the federal ones, as you well know, and we've talked about on here. And so uh, it's, I think it's just confusing for folks who don't live in this world. Now, to the point about a thousand page report, and I think both, you know, having worked for elected officials, you know, you can make the public care about a thousand page report that, that folks aren't going to read you know, if your communications and sort of public strategy around it's good enough. A lot of people well, are going to read it. Well, by the way, the Mueller report was like a bound. You could buy it at a bookstore. It was yeah. very lengthy. People were people were tuning in. But I, there was a, a piece I want to point out, speaking about Trump and sort of the baggage that you are all um, uh, intimating about. Peter Baker at the New York Times um, said that Trump is seeming, seeming to embrace, he's embracing extremism as he seeks to reclaim the White House in 2024 and wondering if it will work. And there's a moment when he is expressing support Four rioters behind the January 6th attack. It was last night, by the way, for a capital uh, for capital rioters in the video for a fundraiser hosted by the Patriot Freedom Project, which is a group that assists families of those charged in the riot. I want to play for you what he had to say and get your reaction. Patriot Freedom is what it's about. And that's not happening in our country. People have been treated unconstitutionally, in my opinion, and very, very unfairly. And we're going to get to the bottom of it. How is this playing, Alex? Well, I think it's playing, first of all, it's not a new uh, tune from the former president, right? That this notion that the the rioters on January 6th are the real victims here, that there's been a terrible miscarriage of justice against them. Uh, we've heard that from him before. We've heard it from him. But this quite is a few after times. the Oath Keepers, right? It's in large part have I'm been not found playing guilty, down. I'm, right? not, yeah. I'm not playing down sure. the gravity of what he's saying. I'm just saying that he, the trajectory uh, that his political post-presidential political career is uh, taking has been pretty clear for some time. And I think his his standing with the country at large, and as Scott was saying before, his standing even within the Republican Party, uh, I think sort of reflects the the general electorate's lack of interest in, you know, how many uh, Republican voters out there, honest to God, want the 2024 election to be about that argument, right? There are certainly some of them. I don't think it's a majority. Is it a critical mass in a, in a primary with a lot of candidates in it? Maybe, and if I were a Republican strategist, that's what would scare me. Is that, Let's ask, you know, are you big, scared? Loud, uh, a minority. <laughs> Listen, if we if we nominate Donald, I, just, I, I said it on election night during the midterms. Say it again. There's no path, in my estimation, for him to win a national election. I mean, look, he didn't get more votes than the two times he tried. Has it gotten any better for him since he lost to Joe Biden, mm. since this midterm, since all this stuff is happening? And if you're an average Republican and you're like looking at these excuses, you know, how, how are these rioters supposed to know they weren't supposed to storm the Capitol? How was I, how am I supposed to stop myself from having dinner with white supremacists? I mean, no, nobody wants to carry these bags when there are viable alternatives that give you everything you want, the fighting spirit, take on the media, fight for, you know, our values and against the woke culture, but you're not carrying these ridiculous bags anymore. I think People have reached their limit. Well, people have carried water for a long time. Yeah. I would just say real fast, I do think this is where the results of the midterm elections are so important that, you know, we all remember in the weeks before the midterm elections, there was this narrative that, you know, are the Democrats too obsessed with January 6th, right? Whatever you think the answer to that question is, Democrats didn't pay a price on election day for being too obsessed with January 6th. 
couple weeks after the midterm election, seeing how they turned out, seeing how they turned out for the candidates who align themselves most closely with Donald Trump, I think Republicans are asking themselves the same question about you know, the leader on their own side. Well, a lot to unpack there and still a lot more to try to figure out. I am noticing both of you have the embroidered um, cufflinks or the embroidered your initials. Initials, Spat, but you know, Spat Scott was, Jennings often does. He, he, he didn't, but he didn't like, tonight. So that's why he does not oh, get man. the last word. Everyone will come back in a moment here <laughs> on these issues. Major changes could be coming to the Democratic primary calendar. What does it mean for future presidential races? Like in, I don't know, 2024? We'll discuss next. Big changes could be coming to Democrats' 2024 primary calendar. The rulemaking arm of the Democratic National Committee voting today to approve President Biden's proposal of a new 2024 presidential nominating calendar. Now, if it's approved at the full DNC meeting early next year, it would mean that South Carolina would become the first state to hold a primary. Nevada and New Hampshire would follow days later with their primaries being held on the same day followed by Georgia and then Michigan before Super Tuesday. Back with me, Ashley Allison, Scott Jennings, and Alex Burns. Let's talk I mean, about the significance of this. I mean, CNN's Jeff Zelny put out a tweet just earlier today saying, so long, Iowa. The DNC has voted to approve a White House plan of moving South Carolina to the front of the line of the 2024 calendar, um, calling it, call it the Presidential Biden Re-Election Protection Act. It's counterintuitive in a way, though, because normally the primary schedule or the path that you may have had to victory the first time, you might want to duplicate it, right? So you have maybe the same assurances. Is this smart strategy or is it just not necessarily about Biden, but more about what he says is a reflection of America? I think that this is a good idea. And this has been a conversation in many communities for a very long time. When you think about the Democratic Party, the question is like, why Iowa first? It's not a very diverse state. It doesn't really capture all the different communities that are a part of the base of the Democratic Party. And primaries are supposed to situate you so that you pick candidates that can fare well in the general election. So I think by going to a South Carolina that has a lot, that is a Southern state mm -hmm. that has a larger black population it shows that Dems are trying to expand their map. A Georgia, we're not putting New Hampshire off. Nevada with the Latino population. Now, did Joe Biden fare well in South Carolina? Mm -hmm. And did it actually shift the balance to begin to catapult him into getting the Democratic nomination? Yes. So coincidence? Perhaps. But I actually think that this has been a broader conversation that has been going on in the Democratic Party, honestly, for the last 20 years since I've been in politics. I mean, Congressman Jim Clyburn, to take this out of, you know, the sort of the vacuum, this is coming after a week when he said he wanted to remain in leadership because the South had to be represented. It's also a time when just this week, a few days ago, the Democrats voted to have as their leaders not white men, which is the first time this has happened. And Hakeem Jeffries making history in his own right. Um, in terms of how this plays, what is your reaction, Scott, in terms of how this might impact maybe the RNC's endeavors later? Uh, I, I don't know that it will, actually. I, I interpreted it as a couple of things. One, it's good to have the White House because I think this is great for <laughs> Joe Biden. I mean, he, this is, I think it works for them. And, and obviously, South Carolina saved his campaign last time around. So that's number one. Number two, Iowa deserved, I think, what they got here, at least the Democrats, because... 
the la- my recollection is the last time they had a caucus, it was a complete and utter oh, disaster. And, uh, and there was confusion and just it, it was poorly run. And, and anyway, so I, I think, I think I'm, not, I'm not surprised at all. I don't, I don't think the Republicans are going to overreact to this, really. Um, I mean, the Republicans' biggest issue is how are they going to treat Trump and whatever demands he makes on the party? He's not an incumbent president, but he's going to want to be treated like one. Looks like we're going to have more than one candidate. And so how's the party going to kind of react to sort of anything he asks for that would advantage him? Biden doesn't have this problem. He can do whatever he wants. He's a president, and that's the difference. I mean, this is a proposal, right? They have voted on it, but they still have a long way to go until it's actually going to be implemented. You already have at least two states saying, I don't think so. If I'm not mistaken, New Hampshire's law requires it to be the first primaries. They have some, some explaining to do, shall we say, in that respect. How do you see this playing out? Look, I think the New Hampshire situation has the potential to be genuinely uncomfortable uh, for Democrats, because if New Hampshire does unilaterally move itself to the front of the line, then you're going to have this standoff between the National Democratic Party, the DNC, the White House, uh, and a state that's actually a pretty important swing state in a general election that does tend to uh, send Democrats to Congress, to the House and the Senate, and where you have influential Democrats in the state uh, speaking out against the White House. So there are potential costs involved there uh, for Biden that do not exist in Iowa, right? That there used to be an argument to be made that mm-hmm. no, Iowa doesn't look like the country. No, they don't run a very uh, tight ship when it comes to actually organizing a, uh, an effective and respectable uh, election. But it's a swing state, and it's important that Democrats uh, can compete there. Well, the people of Iowa have spoken cycle after cycle after cycle that they are not terribly interested in what the Democratic Party is selling, and I think it just makes the breakup that much easier. Mm-hmm. I mean, you wonder in terms of just thinking about back in, in, in 2020, for example, and how Iowa was impactful. And people think about, for example, President Obama before Mm. he was um, elected and secured the nomination. The impact of, say, in Iowa on the trajectory to places like South Carolina. There's almost a debate going on in 10 respects of did Iowa make by did Iowa make Obama or did South Carolina make it possible for Obama? There's all these conversations that really repeat itself now. Sure. And I think the look, there are Democrats for, who for uh, many years would say privately, not publicly, that you know one of the most uh, uh, irksome things that Barack Obama did on the sort of political operations side of his presidency was protect the hell out of Iowa because it, it was so responsible for his own rise. And yeah, it was a really important launch pad for him. Um, but Laura, that was the last time that Iowa played an arguably decisive role in making someone the nominee uh, of their yeah. party, in either party, right? That it was not Mitt Romney who won Iowa in 2012. It was not Donald Trump who won Iowa uh, in 2016. It was not Joe Biden in 2020, and it was Hillary Clinton in 2016, but like by this much, and it was actually pretty embarrassing for her. So the whole, you know, that old adage that Iowa picks corn, New Hampshire picks presidents, uh, is, uh, it's obviously overstated, very, uh, it's sort of excessively flattering to New Hampshire, but Iowa is not doing a whole lot of picking presidents lately. Well, you're right. I mean, in 2020, it was Pete Buttigieg who right. narrowly won the Iowa caucus as well. Maybe good news for him, maybe bad news if he thinks he wants to run in the future. We'll wait and see about all those things. Stick around. You know, I do like the picking corn thing. I like corn. I'm just going to say about that. I'll just use it someplace <laughs> else. But lava. Let's turn our attention there instead. Because lava is spewing from Mauna Loa in Hawaii. And listen, the flow is now less than three miles from a very major highway. We have a report from the ground next. Lava from the world's largest active volcano is edging closer to a major highway on Hawaii's Big Island. CNN's David Culver is on the scene with the latest. 
The nighttime glow of Mauna Loa's oozing lava, well, you just have to pull over to properly admire it. It's basically the middle of the night, and you guys are out here. Why? Well, I mean, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be able to experience this. And we decided to come early in the morning so we didn't have to sit in the traffic. Having hopped from Oahu to here, the Big Island, this family, three generations, came to respectfully honor the Hawaiian eruptions. It's all beautiful to us, and so we pay huge reverence to this. It's very culturally significant for us as well, so it's a big deal. A sight made even more alluring with a side of sunrise, which brought the crowds to Old Saddle Road. Officials turning this stretch into a one-way street, allowing passersby the chance to stop and let the views seep in. And that keeps drivers from pulling over and stopping on this, what is one of the main highways connecting one part of the island to the other. USGS and state officials warned the lava flow, while slowed in recent days, is inching closer to cutting off this highway. It's within three miles now. The other worry, not here on the ground, but up in the air. What look like plumes of smoke? Experts say those are acid gases. Officials monitoring the levels, warning it could become toxic for residents and visitors of the Big Island. Mauna Loa is the second of the Big Island's five volcanoes currently erupting. Kilauea still rumbling after destroying more than 600 homes here in 2018. This is very significant. Like my wife, we made leaves out on Oahu and we brought them over here and we, we gave it as an offering. You know, just you come as respect. But many Hawaiians see the potential path of destruction as simultaneous creation surfacing from this, the world's largest active volcano. With the eruption continuing at its current pace, officials say they should be able to give folks up to two days notice should the lava make its way into that major thoroughfare, cutting off that highway. But they also warn that when it comes to lava flow, there is no forecasting. Laura? David, thank you so much. What a sight to behold. Kanye West is spewing more anti-Semitic filth. Hate speech is surging on Twitter. And this kind of language in America, well, it's becoming alarmingly common. Now it's even causing President Biden, of all the things he's got to do, to weigh in. President Biden calling out anti-Semitism after the rapper Ye, better known as Kanye West, praised Adolf Hitler. The president tweeting, I just want to make a few things clear. The Holocaust happened. Hitler was a demonic figure. Instead of giving it a platform, our political leaders should be calling out and rejecting anti-Semitism wherever it hides. Silence is complicity. He's right, and frankly, far too many people have been silent. I want to bring in CNN political commentators Maria Cardona, excuse me, and Scott Jennings, also CNN's Tom Foreman, and former CIA counterterrorism official Phil Mudd. You know, guys, I have to tell you, I'm tired of talking about Kanye West. <laughs> I really am. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm over the conversation, and I wish we could get over it. But the problem is the significance of the platform that he has. Yeah. The fact that we've got hate crimes on the rise— The fact that we've got social media platforms being used as if people conflate that freedom of speech and free speech is synonymous with hate speech. The idea that we're not talking about things like politics and and, um, the idea of 
breaking with a monarchy and being able to not be suppressed by a government, but instead it's, oh, it's an invitation to use the N-words, invitation to talk about the Holocaust as not being real. And that's just a few of the slivers. And so I, there's this moment I, I want to play for you as we're getting into this conversation about what Jonathan Greenblatt says. He is the CEO and national director of the Anti-Defamation League, talking about why we should care broadly, but specifically about someone with a platform like this. The truth is, he still has a lot of cultural cachet. His name is still, you know, known around the world. So when someone like that is popularizing anti-Semitism, we've all got a problem. And by the way, lest you think it's not a political issue, you know, the House Judiciary Committee, very important, right? This was something that was on their Twitter feed. These three words, three names. It just said Kanye, Elon, Trump. That was up as of October 6, 2022, as in a few months ago. It only recently came down after he made the statements, I believe, surrounding the Alex Jones um, podcast and discussions. This is all of our problems. Do you see it that way? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. When times are tough, and times have been tough for a while, historically, people want to blame others. They want to blame minorities. Mm -hmm. They want to embrace extreme positions that they think will protect them in some way. People may do that. That may be what history does. When it turns into a wildfire is when you allow great big public names and other public names back them in opening that door and saying, yeah, this is okay. This is fine. This is just free speech. I don't think people in America are against free speech. Mm -hmm. But the idea of unfettered, destructive speech there have always been limits on what we do. We have not yet figured out how much this should or shouldn't be limited. But boy, does this look like something that a lot of people are saying, this just can't go on. Let me bring in Phil on this, because Phil, you and I have had these conversations in the past about the idea of people being able to feel entitled to say what they want. And you've got that old common uh, quote from, I think it was Voltaire, you know, I can disagree with you, but I'll fight like hell for you the right to say it. That's a, there are, has always been consequences to certain types of speech. And the idea is that you can't, I mean, the courts recognize that there are certain penalties attached. It's not like it's entirely blameless. But the way that people talk about the First Amendment and free speech now, they assume that it, it relates to any and everything without consequences. And there are real life consequences mm -hmm. to it proliferating. The, the numbers are out there. Speak to me about, Phil, what impact the rise of it has on the safety of our nation? Boy, this, this is going to make you squirm. So if you go back 15 years ago, people in this country, I think, you know, 99% of them would have said, if you see Islamic extremism and people encouraging acts of violence against Jews who come from an, ex from an Islamic extremist perspective, do you think the FBI should investigate them? People would have said, absolutely there's a universal perspective that that's appropriate. If you go fast forward to today and you say, if you see anti-Jewish rhetoric from people who showed up at Mar-a-Lago, I think there would be a significant percentage of people who would say, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with the FBI investigating that. There is a common perspective here, though, and that is when you see extremists, in this case, people who are anti-Jewish talking on public forums, there's going to be a sliver of the American population that says, not only do I believe that, but that authorizes me or validates me to commit commit an act of violence. Mm. Boy, this is a 
extremely uncomfortable because this is going to be tough to investigate, partly because a lot of Americans are going to say, I'm okay with this. Maria, you're nodding and, and thinking about the reality of what he's saying. I yeah. mean, just in these figures, by the way, the, the numbers we have in the sources from the Center for Countering Digital Hate from the mm-hmm. Anti-Defamation League, um, the use of the N-word up 300%. Anti-Semitic posts, at least up 61%. Gay slurs, up 58%. Anti-trans slurs, up 62%. That's just since Elon Musk took control. Yeah, I mean, this whole thing, I think, is even more pernicious than just people saying, yeah, it's okay. To what President Biden said, it's the silence that is also nefarious and pernicious and allows this to fester and become something that's dangerous that actually has cost lives, right? And it has cost lives across the board. Let's remember the massacre in El Paso that happened because of Donald Trump saying things like Hispanic invasion, right? Mm. And so this is something that it has got to be up to, like Jonathan said, he's a, he's a wonderful friend of mine, that we, have, we are the ones that have to put a stop to it in both parties and in everywhere that we see it. And it just so happens that it it is a little bit more pernicious in the Republican Party because there are people there who talk about this like it is free speech, like it is allowed, like it is okay. And too many people are silent about it. Not Scott, you've always spoken out about it. And there are leaders in the Republican Party who have as well, though I don't think as strongly as they should or as immediately as they should, they're doing it more now, but Donald Trump is still the leader of that party. And he had lunch with Kanye and he had lunch with a white supremacist. And that, I think, he has got a huge platform still. And as long as leaders believe that that's okay by either saying it's okay or by not saying anything, this is going to continue to be a danger to our society. I want to weigh in here as well, but I, this is some breaking news that we've got in, too, from Evan Perez and his reporting. And it really is in line in part with the idea of as much as we talk about social media and the ills that accompany it, it's also a vehicle that many people are still getting their information and news from and reliant on it, even though things are changing. And we know that there has been some released Twitter emails that show how employees even debated how to handle the 2020 New York Post Hunter Biden story. And I know you were talking about this a little yeah. bit, and I wonder what your reaction is, because there's this tension, right? There's the idea of what I think the phrase was hellhole or cesspool that Elon Musk referred to as social media. Ironically, he purchased part of it. But then there's the idea of, look, people are going to it for legitimized, legitimate, legitimate, excuse me, news sources. Who amongst us have never wanted to uh, purchase a seventh level of hell and renovate it, you know? (laughs) (laughs) We can make this better. um, uh, You know, it's interesting. Since he took a, Twitter's not changed for me. I use it, you know, I follow news people and it's kind of my, a news feed for me. It hasn't really changed for me. And I know a lot of people freaking out about it now. I, it, it doesn't look any or feel any different to me now. Conservatives believe that before he bought this, and specifically during the 2020 election, the people who worked there were colluding with Democrats and people who supported Democrats to suppress information that was true and that could have been harmful to Joe Biden's candidacy, specifically this Hunter Biden story. I haven't read all the the information that's been released. I know uh, it's out there on the Internet tonight. But that has been the belief of conservatives is that there was essentially this massively influential platform that was putting its thumb on the scale. 
Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so I guess we'll find out internally internally what was going on. I mean, what I mean, remember they shut down the New York Post's account over this story, which turned out to be absolutely one hundred percent true. And uh, and conservatives have really, and I think correctly, been in a lather about it ever since. And so this free speech issue, I think it's absolutely vital to do what you said, which is we all have to we have to stop giving attention to people who are saying these things mm-hmm. for attention or who are having some personal crisis or whatever. But at the same time, these platforms, I do think there needs to be some reckoning about were, were they tilting yeah. the scale in 2020 or in any other election? Let me bring in Phil back into the conversation because I the, part of this and the and the development of what's been happening. Um, so there have been posts that undercut the claim that even tonight Elon Musk was tweeting out about uh, Phil that says that Twitter had acted under government under orders from the government essentially to suppress the Hunter Biden laptop stories. Now um, there's been a series of tweets that have now been posted about this, saying there is no evidence that I've seen this Taibbi of any government involvement in the laptop story. And lawyers for Facebook parent company Meta have said similar comments in recent weeks that disputes the claims that Republicans um, from Republicans that the FBI somehow coerced the suppression of a story. The greater notion here, of course, it's all part of a larger discussion on that certain information is allowed through and others are not. There's a conservative viewpoint being silenced. There's information that's not flattering to Democrats that suddenly everyone is trying to suppress, but everyone else is a victim. What's your take? I disagree with you. No, no. There is a legitimate conversation that should be held in the public media, in social media sites, and in the Congress about the investigation on Hunter Biden, about whether what Twitter did was appropriate, whether what the Department of Justice did was appropriate. There is a much larger and totally separate conversation about whether you allow hate speech on social media supported by a former president that is anti-Semitic and that could lead to the deaths of American citizens. We should not conflate these two, and I disagree with the direction of the conversation. Hunter Biden is different from a conversation about whether we encourage encourage Americans to believe that anti-Semitism is appropriate and that potentially the murder of Americans who believe in anti-Semitism is acceptable. Different conversations. I agree, and I'm not conflating the two in the notion that most people are thinking about these issues in a far too broad umbrella. Mm-hmm. The very reasons that you're speaking about, Phil, the idea here that the, there's only one discussion that is had when we're talking about suppressing information on social media, and inevitably it falls back to a road where it ought to be compartmentalized in a more productive way. I want you wanted to wait. Yeah, but this, but this, this becomes, you know, one of the real problems here is, you know, the old saying: a righteous person does what is righteous, whether or not it benefits him or her. One of the problems in all of this is people are calculating: does it help me? Does it help me to let somebody say something racist or anti-Semitic or misogynist? Does it help me? Then they don't say anything because it helps me. And later on, when it all blows up, they can say, well, you know, I never supported that. But that's the very thing that you were talking about, Maria. People people being quiet about this. Right. They're not being quiet because they don't know about it. Right. And they're not being quiet because they don't know the impact of it. And they're not being quiet because they don't know it's wrong. They're being quiet because for the time being, they think it helps them, right. which is the same as encouraging it. And, you know, Scott, you talk about how conservatives... We're thinking that Twitter was aligned with Democrats during the election. Democrats are convinced, and I still think it's true, that 
I don't necessarily think of faith if, if, if the um, elected or the people who ran Facebook were aligned with conservatives, but that everything that was happening on Facebook, right, the fake news that was out there, that all of that hurt Democrats mm. in terms of the stories that were being pushed, the, the false stories that were being pushed, the Russian stories that were being, the, the Russians were doing it, right? So does that mean that I think that the officials at Facebook were colluding with conservatives? No, I don't think so. But it goes back to how are these platforms run? And that I think the bottom line is, we're not quite sure yet. Like, what's going on with Elon Musk at Twitter? I mean, people think you said that your feed hasn't changed. Tons of people feeds have changed. Uh, you know, they see a lot more hate. They see a lot more misogyny, anti-immigrant rhetoric. And I'm, that's happening to me. So what is going on here, right? It happens in both atmospheres, Democrats and Republicans. But I think Tom's right. It always is about and it shouldn't be what is benefiting me. It should be what is right and what is wrong and what do I need to speak out on? Real quick. Yeah, I agree with something Phil said, though, that the separation of, you know, legitimate political mm-hmm. debate from the countenance, countenancing of absolute vile yeah. hate speech and giving attention to people who, like Kanye West and this other character he brought with him to that dinner with Trump, to, I, I do believe they are separate conversations. How the tech companies deal with information flow of a legitimate political, that's one issue. This other issue, though, uh, and, and, and I don't think, candidly, that many people in the Republican Party are being silent about this. Trump is, is obviously the core issue on right. this one, but everybody from McConnell to McCarthy down to other you know, rank-and-file Republicans here in Washington were pretty uncomfortable with it and, and did speak out and I think understood just how big of a problem it was to, uh, for Trump to have done that lunch or that dinner uh, and really for him to have tried to promote Kanye West as some, you know, paragon of virtue because he had been canceled or he's the new face of the mm-hmm. whatever free speech. No, he is not. He well, is- in fairness, that's where we are now. Things like this have been bubbling along for months and months and months. For people now to say, oh, that's too far. I, I think a lot of people in the Democratic and Republican Party would privately say it went too far a long time ago. You know, I, we are out of time. You're yelling at me in my ear telling me to stop. But, Phil, I know. you're going to yell at me in my ear for different reasons. I'll give you the last word. I'll, I, will, I will go ahead and defer to you because I know you're going to give me a lot of hell if I don't. Go, Phil. What's your last word? Make it quicker. You're still screaming at me. But talk to me. Are you comfortable going into an election campaign with the Department of Justice and the FBI investigating people, that is, right-wing extremists who are comfortable with anti-Semitism, investigating people who are supporting presidential campaigns, yes or no? Oh, well, and with rhetorical? Okay, wonderful. That's how, we'll, that's how we're going to do it. I hear you. I see you, Phil. I love it. I know you. I understand you perfectly. Next up, a new development on a story we've been following. Far-right talk show host Alex Jones filed for personal bankruptcy today. This is significant because Jones was ordered to pay some $1.5 billion to families of Sandy Hook massacre victims following a series of defamation trials this year. A Connecticut attorney representing the families told CNN that Jones's personal bankruptcy filing, quote, will not work. This month marks 10 years, 10 years since the elementary school shooting that took the lives of 20 children and six adults. Hours after the attack, Jones started pushing lies that the tragedy was staged and the families and first responders were crisis actors. And... As we face the real-life consequence of conspiracy theories and hate speech here at home, 
The World Cup is shining a light on human rights issues around the world. Next, we'll talk about what happens when sports and politics collide. The round of 16 is officially set in the World Cup, and tomorrow the U.S. will face off against the Netherlands in a do-or-die match. But this World Cup has seen its share of controversy both on and off the field, with thousands of miles not enough for some players to escape domestic politics. Back with me, Maria Cardona, and joining us, CNN sports analyst Christine Brennan and CNN correspondent Tom Foreman are back with us now as well. First of all, I mean, I don't know if you saw this image earlier of the Qatari TV mocking a moment where they were waving goodbye with their hands over um, their mouths after Germany's loss. Christine, tell us the significance of this moment and why that mocking gesture is so defiant. Well, shame on those announcers for doing that. The German team, before its first match, decided to get a picture taken, a team picture taken, all of them putting their hands over their mouths. What that was about is they were mocking the censorship or... in in protesting the censorship of FIFA, Mm -hmm. saying they could not wear those LGBTQ armbands. It does get involved. (laughs) Anyway, so good for the Germans for doing that. They went and then lost to Japan, and they ended up losing, and they are not going on to the round of 16. Mm. So it's easy to mock them, but I think history will judge them very well. Those German athletes doing that little symbol, Mm -hmm. um, I think, will be remembered far longer than whatever happened on the field. You know, the idea of on and off the field, there was so much symbolism during these World Cups already, and we have yet to even get past Saturday's round. I mean, you have the idea of what happened um, after Iran lost. Mm -hmm. Human Rights Group has indicated that a 27-year-old man was shot and killed by security forces while celebrating the Iranian World Cup loss on Tuesday. You may remember there was a woman who was a rock climber mm-hmm. who did not, she said, um, she accidentally did not put on her hijab before competing. Mm-hmm. We're learning that her home has been demolished, although there's unconfirmed reports necessarily as to who has done it and the why. But the air of a reaction and a punishment in this, is in the air. Well... You know, the sense that sports can be, uh, uh, you know, this unifying force for the world and this escape from all the troubles that we all face all the time, that has really changed in recent years. But I think it's changed in part because you have had people who have wanted to use sports to promote their agenda. And they've sort of pushed the idea that if our team wins, it means our nation is greater than your nation. If our team wins, it means your free speech was wrong. Well, I don't blame the athletes at all in that environment saying, hey, we have something to say here, too. We are not merely pawns. And in some places, like Iran, I think the consequences for that can be very dire, Mm -hmm. although we've seen in this country some athletes stand up for what they believe, and they've paid some prices, too. You know, thinking about the idea of the trying to take something that is associated with the enthusiasm of sports, I think about the Brazilian iconic yellow jersey. It was being used by Bolsonaro to try to use it in association with his campaign, with his incumbency and going on. And now some fans have taken to wearing the the blue, less iconic version (laughs) of the jersey. I mean, look at you think about the Brazilian soccer team uniform. You think about the yellow and this notion of of politicians um, trying to almost hijack symbols for their own self-serving purposes 
it's something that's not necessarily unique to just this game. No, and, and it, has, it has happened before. And I think it's a shame because, you know, Tom, you're right. I think a lot of us, the world, sees sports as a place to kind of say, ah, okay, let's just have some fun. Let's let go. But it's not new that sometimes, a lot of times, the passion gets in the way and becomes the thing that then goes to whether it's violence or extremism or things that are said and shouted that, you know, perhaps in the moment they didn't mean it, but then it becomes something else. Mm. I think what is interesting about everything that's happening at the World Cup, especially all of these governments that are extremist governments that are trying to shut people up and shut women up, right? They're, they're doing their own agendas harm because they're calling attention to their own extreme agendas and to their own dictatorships and autocracies. Yeah. And you're seeing not just in, in, in Iran, but in China, that that is starting to backfire. You know, is this going to change tomorrow or next week? No. But as, as the places in, in those countries, the populations get younger and younger, they're becoming more defiant. I tell you, the idea- hopefully that is going to lead to change. I mean, your, your point is so well taken. And, you know, the United States, we at times live in a glass house mm-hmm. and we throw stones. There's varying degrees of the human rights issues that we all grapple with globally. But our athletes collectively, whether it's on this stage, the World Cup, or even at home, Christine, you know, they're asked questions about things not anything to do with the actual field or their game of play. And we've been following the story this week where LeBron James calling out the media and talking about, hold on, you've asked a lot of questions about, say, a Kyrie Irving. Why not questions about, say, a Jerry Jones and a photo from many years ago where he was um, seeing, they believe, a 14-year-old, I think, Jerry Jones attending a rally that was in favor of the maintenance of segregation. And Jerry Jones has responded. And I want you to listen to what he had to say when he's talking about his respect for LeBron. I don't know of anybody I respect anymore. Uh, I don't know of anybody that has... Uh, taken every opportunity he's had and maximized it. Uh, he uh, not only is an absolute great uh, ambassador for sport, he has taken sports, he's taken his venues and used those platforms. Uh, I, I just uh, I want to be sure that you know where I'm coming from. I did hear what he had to say. So he addressed it, didn't address the actual substance of the controversy, of course, but... Well, to your point, right, you've got the spotlight again, and people are talking about it. LeBron is right. Those questions should be asked, whether it's anti-Semitism or racism. Journalists should be asking those questions, and Jerry Jones deserves those questions. Obviously, he understands, and he can handle himself and answer them as well. Can I just say that was a lesson in crisis communications 101, what he just did. Not answering the question fully? No, but, no, but he, he, he talked about how wonderful LeBron is and, and was able to kind of pivot to that. And he, he did say at the end, I hear what he said. Yeah. Well, well and flatter- I, and, Go ahead. And I, and I got to say, I, I think one thing about this that, that is I find important in sports. Maybe I'm uh, old-fashioned or naive about this. I'm a big hockey fan. One of the things I'm always amazed at in hockey, you can have the most brutal series you can imagine. And the players line up and shake hands at the end. Mm -hmm. I think some of the most important moments in sports are simply the respect the players show to each other, Mm -hmm. regardless of creed, regardless of where they came from. And and that, it doesn't seem big. 
But in the world we live in today, that's a kind of protest. The simple fact that you walk over to your opponent and say, you are worthy, you're worthwhile, you're not diminished as a person because we fought today. An important point about sportsmanship, I do wonder what LeBron's reaction will be given part of his larger issue was the notion of the level of atonement required among black athletes compared to the pat on the back or the job well done that's often reserved for others. Obviously, very different circumstances, Kyrie Irving, Jerry Jones, and you can name any number Mm -hmm. of analogies. None of them are precise, but I'm curious what his reaction is on all of this. Well, the coronavirus pandemic has had a huge impact on all of us, speaking of, in many respects, all in it together. There's now a new study that's revealing just how drastic that impact has been on teenagers, and it involves the brain aging faster than it ought to. A new study says stress brought on by the COVID pandemic may have caused teenagers' brains to age faster than normal. Researchers say that there were physical changes in the teens' brains, and increased anxiety and depression could really be to blame. I want to discuss now with clinical psychologist Dr. Nayasha Chikaware, who joins us now. I'm so excited you're here to bring us your expertise. It's very scary to think about, um, in many respects, what we thought might happen. Right. What impact this would have on young people? We thought maybe emotionally, but really it's on their minds. Yeah. Tell me what, and tell me in what ways. So in so many ways, and before the pandemic, the CDC was reporting that at least 37% of teens were having mental health issues, and that number skyrocketed during the pandemic. So we're seeing teens being isolated, um, withdrawing from their social communities, feeling depression, anxiety, sadness, issues with concentrating. They weren't doing their homework, completing assignments. It was just a tough time for them. And these aren't things that one wants to be dismissive of and say, oh, this is just teenagers being teenagers. This is significant. And the acceleration of the aging, we think about maturity and maturation, and we think about that maybe in an emotional sense, which is good, but maturation at an accelerated pace of the brain can have long-term significance, right? Right. I mean, we don't know yet what that's going to look like for this generation when they're young adults and when they're older. But what we do know is that when your brain matures quicker, you start experiencing issues with brain fog, which what that looks like is issues planning out your day, which teenagers already have an issue with because their brains are still maturing. Your brain doesn't fully mature until you're at least 25. So they're having issues with that end. And then they're struggling just to verbalize and vocalize what they're going through with their parents, with their teachers. They're online all day, which is also exacerbating how they're feeling because they're looking at social media. We know that bullying has increased, people harassing each other online. So they were just going through so many things that we have yet to see what those effects are going to be. And although it happened, you're talking about teenagers, across the age spectrum, the impact has been there from the older populations to maybe even younger kids. I mean, I have an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old. They were in distance learning. My daughter left kindergarten and came back a second grader. That's significant. That's very significant. And on top of that, we're looking at kids looking at computers and iPads all day and seeing that they're they're not keeping that attention span that they used to have when they're in school 24-7. So now we're just trying to figure out how do we get our kids back to, I guess, what was normal before in helping them be socialized the right way, 
helping them have those skills like we were talking about to verbalize how they feel, what's going on with them. Whereas now with the pandemic, they were kind of shut in and not knowing how to do that. It's so important to think about ways to course correct, which is why the work and research is so important. One, for parents to even be aware that this may be happening and to think about the learning curve we've all had to try to climb over these past several years. Mm -hmm. So important to hear from you, Dr. Chikaware. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Well, you know what? There's the issues of the pandemic that were created, of course, so that, that impacted people's brain developments. And then there's the issues happening from all the things that were taken to try to address distance and social distancing. New York City, a prime example. The mayor, Eric Adams, is now pulling out a call to arms against one of the consequences of some of the changes, the city's pesky rodent population. And if you live in New York, have a bachelor's degree, or are proficient in Microsoft Word, you might be qualified to do what they're calling the rat czar. I'm going to explain what that is. It's a real thing. It's next. Do you have a virulent vehemence for vermin? That's quite a tongue twister. Well, New York City may have a job for you. The city is currently on the hunt for a, get this, a rat czar, more formally known as a director of rodent mitigation. The ideal candidate, someone who considers themselves, quote, highly motivated and somewhat bloodthirsty. And you could earn a pretty penny for the role with a salary ranging from $120,000 to $170,000. Back with me now, Maria Cardona, Christine Brennan, and Tom Foreman, none of whom are mousy. <laughs> Thank you. I, I see what you did there. I smell a rat. Wow. Oh, all right. Oh, sorry. There we go. No. I had to say it. I'm That's glad good. you did. I got to tell you, like, when you think about New York City and see some of the, the rat issues that are there, it's a real thing. I mean, the idea that they have this job posting is obviously mm-hmm. a necessity. I mean, that you're going to see these images of people, and you yeah. remember the infamous pizza rat. Pizza rat. Pizza rat. Remember him carrying okay. up a full slice? What do you make of this, Tom? Well, here's what I make of this. There are, uh, there's an estimate that there are 2 million rats in New York. I, I don't know. I don't know how much we can rely on the rat census, but <laughs> but perhaps let's say there are two million rats in New York, and you want to go after these rats in New York, and this is your job. I think there are things in the application for becoming the rat person. Have you filled out one? Hold no, on. I, I'm, I'm working on it, but it's but it's but I do. I think there are things missing here. Like it doesn't really say. Do you have much of a team, or is this basically like a sack and a pair of gloves? What are you supposed oh, to God. do? And two yeah. million. Rats, that's a lot. How many do they think you're going to knock out? That's true. I mean, think about you all must be rat fans, right? No, not at all. I mean, I actually, the rat pack, out of a full confession, Maria, when I was in sixth grade, I actually Mm -hmm. had a pet rat. It was a hooded rat that I got from a pet store, like a gerbil esque thing. My mother has still not forgiven me. Three months later, it tripled in size, and I was horrified by it. But I am not applying to be a rat czar. I am not horrified by that story, Thank Laura. you. Ratatouille, you know, I, my kids grew up on that, and, and I have to say that they cutified rats for me. We had a have rat— Have you seen a subway rat? <laughs> we live in Washington, D.C., okay, Laura. I used to live in Adams Morgan, and I would go back to where we parked the car in an alleyway, and we would pass rats— and they'd be eating pizza and they'd look at us and be like, hey, what's going on? Can I help you with something? 
<laughs> and then just, we were on our way and the, like nothing. And so, yes, I understand the rat problem in, in, in New York because we have one in well, Washington, D.C. And I think, you know, really, that's the point. Every city, a big yeah. city, has rats. And so the idea that you're going to somehow be able to eradicate rats from the biggest city in the country. Did you say eradicate? Yeah. Eradicate. Yeah, you did say that. that. You did say that. I love it. No, let me see if I can spell that right. the right way with the rat. Um, the, every city. So, you know, good luck, mm-hmm. Tom, if you're yeah. going to take the job. I might, I might do okay. Good luck. I am, we could come back a year from now and I have a feeling, or two years, whatever yeah. the time period is, and there's going to be the same two million rats. By the way, the, pro- yeah. the proliferation of it, though, is interesting because, in part, it's because you had outdoor dining. You had trying mm-hmm. to compensate for the social distancing rules of New York City, trying to have people adjust themselves to COVID and more food. I've been told more food on the streets, the construction. That's part of the reason. Of course, we remember American Tail, and they were there <laughs> even in Disney fashion at that point in time. But I was told then, Tom, there were no cats in America and the streets were here, a great, here is a great bit of odd trivia. Cats actually don't do a lot of rat and mice hunting. People think they do, but they don't no. really. So the lack of cats is not a problem. If I become the rat czar, I will not be bringing in a lot of cats. How will you do it, Tom? Well, I'm not really sure. I've got a couple of ideas. There's something involving a flute and a river. I've read that in the past, uh, but yes, I don't know. There you go. But I don't know how to play the Magic flute. Magic so. wand. It's perfect for the job because you're not giving us any answers at all. Yeah, you know what the problem is? Here the problem is you get this hired. job and they you're have a big hired. city meeting and the mayor is like, you know, here's my chief of police and here's the fire chief. And, and then they're all like, that's the right guy. You don't get any, you get no love. You're no. the rat guy. You're doing all the dirty work. Nobody cares. Well, well, Fievel might. He was told he can now come back home, everyone. The, so all the big tale and all these things are happening right go. now. Everyone will be right back. <laughs> We're now about just one week away from announcing the 2022 CNN Hero of the Year, who will be chosen by you, our viewers. Tyreek Glasgow is one of the finalists. He was shot 11 times when he was a drug dealer in his South Philly neighborhood. But since returning home from prison a decade ago, he has been a force for good. When you run a block, you're the one who the community and people know. It's a dangerous life, but it's a normal life. Going to jail really woke me up. If our community was going to follow me for some of the negative stuff, I just said, let me see if they're going to follow me for something positive. Right, you can grab what you want. Make yourself at home. In 2019, we opened up our community engagement center, which used to be at the community drug house, but now it's a safe place for our children. How many people here got kids? We provide clothing, food, vegetables. We have hot meals on Tuesdays and Thursdays. One shrimp, one chicken. Giving people what they need not only helps them, it consistently stays safer here. The shootings are down and the hope is up. That's what she's here for. My relationship with the Philadelphia Police Department is cool. Seeing the officers in a different light, it builds trust and it builds confidence. They need to see that all cops aren't bad. It's really about your heart and what you want to do. We're trying to create a safe haven and an environment for the whole neighborhood. Go to CNNHeroes.com right now to vote for Tyreek for CNN Hero of the Year or any of your favorite top 10 heroes. Thank you so much for watching. Our coverage continues. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry.
Max subscription required.